The contents of the lab report are meant for educational purposes only and are not meant to be misconstrued as medical diagnosis or treatment advice. Today on The Lab Report, Cynthia Thurlow. Yeah, she's an expert in intermittent fasting. And she's a functional nutritionist, so let's do this thing. The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to The Lab Report. Skipping breakfast. So I shouldn't skip breakfast? Oh, you can skip whatever you want, Patty. You're an <laughs> adult. Michael. Hello. Hi, Michael Chapman. Hello, Patty Devers and everyone out there in podcast land. Wow. Is that a place? That's right. Well, welcome to the lab report, everyone. A Genova podcast where we talk about things like specialty lab testing, uh-huh. functional medicine, uh-huh. integrative therapeutics, wow. and intermittent fasting. Wow. I'm so excited about this show today. And if you should be, if you listen to you this show, you should be fired up. <laughs> and you hear Cynthia Thurlow speak today. Wow. Really? Yeah. The DJ Ailhorn, we yeah. needed that? Yeah. Well, if you hear the show and, and you love Cynthia Thurlow's interview, you can go to iTunes or Spotify and hit that subscribe button, rate, review, download, all of those good things. And after you do that, if you still have feedback, you still feel incomplete, you still feel like you need to do more, <laughs> then you can email podcast at gdx.net wow. and, you know, show your support there or the opposite, which is to provide your criticism. But they don't want to do that. No. <laughs> <laughs> what criticism? <laughs> but today's really? sh- today's show is really interesting, and it's it's something that we've been missing. Yeah, we've had a lot of conversations about diet on this show. Yeah. we've talked about paleo, That's keto, right. mm-hmm. even carnivore diets, Mediterranean. Yeah, yeah, we've talked. That's right. We've talked all around the diets, but you know, we, d- we haven't focused on intermittent fasting. That's true. I we kind of skirted around it. We asked a, a few bit. questions here and there, but yeah. like we haven't really gotten sh- hit it straight on. So. Yeah. What we need to do is talk to the expert on it. So we went right to Cynthia Thurlow. And if you've Googled her or seen her speak on her TED Talk about intermittent fasting, you'll see she's, she's such a compelling speaker. And I, have, I actually happen to be a fan of hers. Yeah? Yeah, because she comes from the conventional world. She was a nurse practitioner in cardiology and in the emergency department for a long time, kind of like me. And then we found functional medicine later, and it's a whole new passion. You guys are like kismet. Kind of. Yeah, I mean, I didn't come from that same background, but I'm also a, a big fan of yeah. hers as well. She just has a really well-rounded approach. It's very, uh, I think, you know, from a functional medicine point of view, it speaks to a lot of the different important areas. And But she also has sort of a level head in the way that she addresses patients and understands you got to meet the patient where they are, and we're going to talk to her about all those different elements, yeah. and especially intermittent fasting. Well, why don't we call her up? Yep. So, Patty. Yeah. Guess who we have today? Oh, I know. We have Cynthia Thurlow. Isn't that amazing? I know. Oh, my gosh. So let me tell you a little (laughs) bit about Cynthia Thurlow. Cynthia Thurlow is a globally recognized expert in nutrition and intermittent fasting, a highly sought-after speaker, and the CEO and founder of Everyday Wellness Project. She's been a nurse practitioner for greater than 20 years, starting as an ER nurse, then a nurse practitioner in cardiology, and now a functional medicine clinician. She's a two-time TEDx speaker, has appeared on numerous television programs, and has been a featured expert in many national newspapers and magazines. 
She's the founder of Cynthia Thurlow LLC, co-author of the book Primal Eating, and a co-host of the Everyday Wellness Podcast, which was listed among the 20 podcasts that will help you grow in 2020 by Entrepreneur Magazine. And with that, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, so glad to be here with you both this morning. It's really a pleasure to connect uh, outside of just email. (laughs) That's right. Well, what I find interesting about you, Cynthia, is that much like me, you made a big leap away from the traditional Mm -hmm. and conventional medicine world. I mean, I was a hospitalist for 18 years and then took that big leap. Tell us how Mm -hmm. and why you came to practice functional medicine and nutrition. You know, I think it really stemmed from, you know, I, I felt like I was writing a lot of prescriptions. I think mm-hmm. that was a, a, a bulk of what we do in cardiology because by the time most people, you know, end up in our clinic or end up in the hospital, they have documented vascular disease. Uh, but I also think becoming a parent really opened my eyes up to a whole other world. I think that my husband and I have always eaten very healthy, mm-hmm. but our oldest son, uh, when he was about four months old, he was exclusively breastfed and developed horrible eczema. Hmm. And I I recall having a discussion with a pediatrician. I kept saying, is it something I'm eating? Mm -hmm. And they kept saying, no, no, no. Hmm. You know, he's just, you know, he's probably got, you know, environmental allergies. And here he is, this healthy, robust four-month-old with horrendous, horrendous eczema. And so I just kept pushing the envelope. Is it food? Could it be something he's eating? What's going on? And so when we ultimately got his food uh, allergies tested, we were stunned to realize he had life-threatening food allergies. He was uh, very susceptible to all us and also peanuts. Mm. And that dove me down the rabbit hole of food allergies and, and the fear of, you know, taking my son, you know, at the time he was very young, yeah. taking him to any restaurant because of cross-contamination. And so that definitely, you know, got the ball rolling, if you will. And, and I was becoming increasingly kind of disillusioned with uh, just the, the concept of treating every symptom with a pill as opposed to really looking at lifestyle modifications. And it's not a sexy topic for mm-hmm. patients. And certainly clinicians don't want to spend the time talking about those things because it's hard to get reimbursed, right? Right. right. So I remember I read a book that changed my life called The Unhealthy Truth. And that book shifted everything for me. Uh, And I I have no affiliation with Robin O'Brien. I think she's an incredible wellness warrior. Mm -hmm. But that book is what really opened up my eyes. And then I started looking a bit more deeply. You know, I I thought about doing a doctoral program. And then I thought about doing wellness coaching. And then I kind of fell into a functional nutrition program. And that lit me up. And there were many other, you know, out of a class of like 30, there were at least five other Western medicine trained clinicians, including several physicians. Wow. Uh, and myself and a few nurses. And, uh, you know, that for me was really validating. It was like, we're looking for uh, other ideologies of why people are so sick. And so that, that kind of got it started. And then, um, then I got really passionate about it. And, and a lot of the cardiologists I work with, they thought it was kind of cute. They're like, let's see a <laughs> talk about her food stuff with our patients. And so they would march a patient off and I would say 90% of them tuned me out because they would say, Cynthia, I, I, I respect what you're saying, but I'm not going to change the way I eat. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to exercise and I'm not going to stop smoking. And so I was like, okay, then, then you get a pill. Right, <laughs> right, uh, right. But for the 10% that were open to it, it was revolutionary for them, especially my diabetic patients. And I'm sure both of you can appreciate this, that uh, kind of conventional diabetes management doesn't really focus on uh, limiting carbohydrate intake. It's focused on counting carbohydrate intake. Yeah. And so I had this lovely 
you know, tr- you know, multiple MIs, vascular path, diabetic patients. And I recall having a conversation. I said, let's just talk about what you eat in a day. And in the day, he ate four bananas. And I said, does it make sense to have a lot of fruit if you've got a sugar handling problem? And he was like, well, the diabetes educator told me it was okay. And I said, no, mm-hmm. not okay. Mm-hmm. Not good. Right. <laughs> got a sugar handling problem. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, I, I think my, my pivot away from Western medicine really stemmed from feeling like I could make a larger impact, not just writing prescriptions. And, and that's not to suggest, and I'm always very, very supportive of my Western medicine trained um, peers. I want to be really clear about that. Mm-hmm. But I just felt like my voice could be used in a different way and more effectively than, you know, trying to trying to, you yeah. know, motivate the 10% of my patients that were open to changing their diet. I, as I an example. That. I love that. Yeah. And you are making a difference. Yeah. And it's, it's so amazing mm-hmm. how, you know, even today with what we know, you know, how much of a struggle it is to have diet be the main focus of the conversation and the main focus of the intervention, mm-hmm. um, you know, just in general. And we, we spend a lot of time talking about diet on this podcast, whether it's ketogenic or paleo. And, you know, although you're well known as an expert in overall wellness, you also became a viral sensation after your TED talk on intermittent fasting. So can you tell us a little bit of the, the backstory on that TED talk and how you got interested in intermittent <laughs> fasting? Seven million people saw that TED talk. Yeah. Seven yeah, million people. Yeah. It, it's kind of, it's a kind of a, a crazy backstory. So there's two backstories. The first backstory is how did I get exposed to intermittent fasting? And it was really because I had three women that I was friends with who just brought it up in conversation and being a perimenopausal middle-aged female, uh, you know, things, the, the ground shifts at that point in our lives, you know, maybe you've always, you've never had a weight problem, but women hit middle age and all of a sudden the game shifts. And so I got very curious about it, read about it, tried it out, loved it, and then started being very passionate, a passionate supporter of it. Uh, the, the other backstory is that uh, 27 days before that talk, I had been in the hospital and nearly died. Hmm. And so one of the things that my surgeon said to me over and over and over again was, if you hadn't been this healthy, I'm not sure you would have made it. So yeah. for me, uh, intermittent fasting on so many levels has been able to um, impact a lot of lives, not only my own, uh, but in, in profoundly beneficial ways. I, I truly believe that had I not been as healthy as I was, that I might not have made it out of a 13-day hospitalization. But it kind of makes it a, a cool story when you think about the fact that part of what my uh, mindset, other than getting home to my family, of course, was mm-hmm. I felt this talk was so needed to be shared. Mm-hmm. Like right. I, I was like, there's a platform to share really valuable information. I obviously am a huge TEDx supporter and to still have that opportunity. I mean, it was one of the things that got me through that kind of miserable yeah. 13 day hospitalization. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that's, there's two backstories, but you know, one is very positive and one is has a positive ending, but uh, I, I do believe that intermittent fasting has been an integral part of how I've stayed healthy throughout my, my four days. Wow, yeah. That's incredible. I mean, it is a compelling story to like literally leave a hospital bed and go mm-hmm. give that amazing talk. I mean, that's compelling. <laughs> yeah. But but yeah. all things being equal, let's let's kind of jump in a little bit to the specifics of intermittent fasting, because we know there's lots of mm-hmm. types. There's like 16, eight. And tell us kind of like your canned speech around the benefits of intermittent fasting. Well, I think a lot of people are curious about intermittent fasting because they are curious about losing weight. But I oftentimes really like to focus on all the other benefits, and I call it the non-scale benefits. Mm -hmm. So, you know, with lowered insulin levels, you're going to have improved mental clarity. I think that surprises many, many people. You know, we reduce inflammation or inflammaging, as I like to also call it. 
Uh, for many people, they lessen their likelihood that they're going to go on to develop, um, you know, diabetes, so that lowers, you know, your your uh, biophysical markers, blood pressure, uh, glucose uh, can impact our cholesterol panel profoundly. Uh, reduces our likelihood that we'll develop what I like to call type three diabetes or Alzheimer's, as mm -hmm. well as other neurodegenerative disorders. Uh, you know, one of the key benefits is autophagy, that spring cleaning of the cells. And we know that that can lessen our likelihood of developing certain types of cancers. And so I always remind people autophagy is the way to think about it is that you get rid of yuck that your body doesn't need. But the only way that that occurs is when we're in a fasted state. So those are some of the big benefits. But I, I do find that the mental clarity and the you know heightened amounts of energy for a lot of people are what keep them doing it. They just feel so much better. And then, you know, they get the side of, of weight loss if that's, you know, their desired impact. Um, and if their their body is properly balanced, there's so many factors that impact whether or not people um, lose weight with intermittent fasting. And that's always another hotbed of conversation sure. because that can be a, a sticking yeah. point for many people. Sure. Yeah. I love that explanation that autophagy is the spring cleaning. I love that. But mm -hmm. do, you, do you do the like 16 hours of fast eight with an eating window or do you do the two days per week? How, what, what's, what's your intermittent fast of choice? So I would say for me personally, I like variety. I always remind people that much like when you go to the gym, you don't do the same set of exercises over and over and over again every day, 365 days a year. And so for me personally, what I, I typically aim for is an 18-6, but I could have a 24-hour fast in a week. I might do a, um, you know, a 12-hour a, a feeding window. I, I like to do a refeed day, and I hate that that terminology, but there's no other way to describe yeah. it. Mm -hmm. I like my body to know that it's not starving. So mm -hmm. I have one refeeding one day where I will have three meals instead of two. But typically, when I'm talking about intermittent fasting, I either focus on the 16-8 or the 18-6 because uh, kind of like I always use the, another analogy is, of like a bike with training wheels you want to make sure people are able to sustain a measured amount of fasting on a daily basis before they start mixing mixing up the schedules and because i'm a long-term intermittent faster mm -hmm. i like variety in my my fasting and so actually that actually makes me feel better to be honest i mm -hmm. might have a refeeding day and the next day maybe a 24-hour fast mm -hmm. and that has worked really well for me nice. uh, and it's definitely a strategy that i discuss with my like more advanced I use the term advanced. People have been doing intermittent fasting for yeah. more than a few months and have got, you know, the basics underneath their belt. But you're right. There are a lot of different schedules that people can ascribe to. Really depends on the individual and their lifestyle and what makes the most sense to them. Nice. Interesting. And, you know, with those individuals who are a little bit more of the advanced type, they're always kind of trying to figure out the best way to optimize the intermittent fast. And I know mm -hmm. coronabiology is kind of a, a hot topic these days. And we've talked about it a little bit as it relates to circadian rhythms, but also as it relates to, mm -hmm. you know, if you were to skip breakfast as compared to skipping dinner, is there an optimal window to be eating with respect to chronobiology that we're aware of at this point? I think, you know, based on what I'm sorry, I hear a dog barking um, based on this is what happens. The cleaners come, they turn the vacuum on and one of my dogs who's crated goes bananas because he thinks he's going to get sucked up the vacuum and he's a 50 pound dog. Yeah. Um, you know, based on you know what I'm seeing, it's really dependent on 
you know, the individual, because we have a lot of shift workers, you know, for those of us that are working in medicine or people still working shifts. What I find is that most people, most of the research that I've looked at is that we do better with eating earlier in the day rather than later. So Mm -hmm. for some people, I'll encourage them to break their fast before noon if they're able to do that. Um, and then ending their fast by early evening. Now, obviously, flexibility is really what's key. Sure. Mm-hmm. And if we're looking at you know research and indicators, most of what I'm most of what I personally have read suggests eating earlier in the day versus later. But for some people, I always call me you know the night owl. Sometimes they're they're not even hungry until the middle of the afternoon. And so, I think it depends on you know metabolic flexibility ultimately. You know mm-hmm. how are they doing with their 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 indicators? How are they doing with you know, they're, um, you know, they're in their fasting insulin, you know, fasting glucose, or are they using a ketone meter? How is their quality of sleep? How's their stress management? All of those things can certainly impact um, how best, you know, that will work for their own physiology and, and chronobiology. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And even just socially, like, what are they able to right. accomplish? Right. Right. Because day. at the end of the day, you want right. them to get the fast <laughs> done, whether it's, you know, whether we're parsing out these details and how important that is, you know, that right. I think getting it done is, is right. the most important thing first and foremost. Yeah. I think the other thing that's really can be very important for people to realize is that, that it's not rigid. So if they're going to a family celebration, they're on vacation, they can, they can push their windows around to make it work for them. So I, I was asked in a, a group program that I run yesterday Someone was saying we have a celebration on the weekend. If I normally close my window at six, what do I do? And I said, break your fast a little later. Maybe you break your fast at 10, push mm-hmm. it to 12, push your feeding window out to 8 p.m. or nine o'clock. I said, that's the beautiful thing about fasting is it's flexible. It doesn't have to be rigid. There's very few things about fasting that I think are, you know, rigid in terms of if you want to look at look at it from a black or white perspective. But most other things are very gray. And I think that's really critical and important because our lives are dynamic. They're, they're not designed to be rigid, I think, in my, my perspective. I think people do best when they can honor what's going on in their lives, whether it's a special event or vacation. Probably not, probably not very many of us are going on vacation right now, right, but right. if they do have a, a need to have more flexibility, they can do so. No, it's a, that's a great point. And it's, you know, it makes me think about ancestrally, you know, our body wasn't normally <laughs> yeah. on a schedule, right? And right. with what you just said, you tend to feel a little bit better when you keep your system a little bit imbalanced or unpredictable unpredictable as far as when mm-hmm. you're doing your fast. And so that, I think that makes sense. So Me that's too. really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, it's also that piece about hormetic stressors, you know, when we're really talking about how intermittent fasting is one type of hormetic stressor and it's good for our bodies to be stressed in line, you know, tiny amounts, not so mm-hmm. that we're miserable, you know, we're not looking to, to starve our bodies, right. but it's one way to kind of shake things up. And that's, that's much to the point that I was making about, whether you're looking at it from an ancestral health perspective or you're looking at it from the perspective of, you know, being flexible based on what our, our biology or what our lives dictate is really critical. Yeah. And even as part of this, many people disagree on what breaks a fast. In fact, some people say mm-hmm. it's okay to drink bulletproof coffee or diet soda has no calories, for example. But in your opinion, what breaks a fast? I tend to be a purist. So Uh from my perspective, there are only a few things that you can consume in a fasted state. So, you know, water, obviously, um, plain coffee and bitter teas. And so there are other things like there's research to suggest that 
you know, filtered apple cider vinegar, if you people like to put that in their water or ginger or cinnamon or things like that will not break your fast. But bulletproof coffee or fatty coffees for someone that's trying to lose weight, I, I remind people of this. I'm like, listen, we want to learn how to fast properly. And so I'm always going to suggest we do it properly, meaning you're not adding cream or, you know, butter or um, MCT oil to your coffee because that will ultimately MCT oil more than a teaspoon will definitely break your fast. But the point I'm trying to make, they're typically used as crutches, but the person that benefits from bulletproof coffee most is Dave Asprey, who I respect enormously, Mm -hmm. but I like to show people there's no research to suggest that bulletproof coffee is, is uh, not breaking your fast. So why would you consume something that's two or 300 calories and say to me, well, I was able to fast for 20 hours. And I'm like, well, that's great, but you really didn't fast. You're fat fasting, which is different. Mm-hmm. And it's that's an important distinction. So when people come to me and they want to have stevia, and they'll say, well, it's less than 50 calories, what difference does it make? Or they want to have, no one's having saccharin, but aspartame, these other type of artificial sweeteners, uh, the ones that are created in the lab, obviously stevia, in most instances, that can be a naturally occurring substance, but is generally processed like things like Truvia that's made by the Coca-Cola organization. I like to remind people that anything that evokes an insulin response. So that could be things like branched chain amino acids. Mm -hmm. That could be a lot of supplements that people take, like fat soluble vitamins, Mm -hmm. um, you know, protein powders, creatine. I get a lot of questions. People want to take their pre-workouts and I'm like, listen, if you want to do it right, you got to either include those in your feeding window or just recognize that what you're doing, although I I can understand the point you're trying to make that you feel that it's beneficial for your body, but the best pre-workout you can use is coffee. Probably the second best is green tea, but we know that there are components of both coffee and green tea and bitter teas um, that have profound benefits on fat oxidation. Mm -hmm. And so I encourage people to really think about, you know, if they're transitioning into intermittent fasting and they're struggling with getting through a fast, I'm like, there's no shame in doing a 12 or a 13 hour fast and slowly opening up that window. But for anyone who's going to suggest that bulletproof coffee or diet sodas don't break your fast, I mean, look at a cephalophase insulin response and our body in response, even to the sight, sound or smell of food Mm -hmm. can secrete insulin. So how would that be any different than something we're consuming? Yeah. Yeah. And you've already gone through the work of getting your insulin levels low, getting your glucagon up. You Mm -hmm. know, why, why risk it if you're, I mean, theoretically, anytime you spike that insulin or or stimulate it, that's going to cause a change to autophagy, Mm -hmm. correct? Right. Absolutely. And I, and I remind people, the average American right now, between looking at beverages and food, eat 16 to 17 times a day. And so Mm -hmm. if you look at a distribution, looking at someone who is intermittent fasting and maybe they have three spikes of insulin during the day versus someone who's got spikes of 16 to 17 times a day, you can appreciate why if someone's doing intermittent fasting right, they're going to be more metabolically flexible and healthy than someone that is just, I mean, you're stoking insulin all day long. And insulin is not, I, I know you all know this, but uh-huh. for anyone who's listening, you know, insulin sometimes gets demonized, but I remind people insulin is not a bad thing. It's a good hormone, mm-hmm. but our bodies, if over time we're stoking that insulin response all day long, we are going to get obese and we are going to get inflamed and sick. And that's obviously what we're seeing in, in most westernized societies right now, you know, much, much to my tremendous sadness and, and dismay. Sure. Uh, so, you know, certainly intermittent fasting is, is a way for people to find their way out of that overeating kind of mindset, the mini meals and snacks and all sorts of nonsense. Yeah. Right. Great. Yeah. Great. Well, 
one question for some of the clinicians who are listening and might be new to the concept or new to prescribing. Are there contraindications to intermittent fasting or are there patients whom you'd maybe not recommend it or recommend it a little bit more mm-hmm. carefully? Absolutely. Uh, obviously, I, it's not a technique that I, I recommend for uh, children or, or even teenagers. Uh, they have to be done growing because they restricting calories and, and restricting their food intake would be detrimental. I think on a case-by-case basis, you know, people over the age of 70, obviously, there are always outliers. I got so many angry emails after <laughs> I did that talk because people say, I'm 76 and I'm super active. And I'm like, that's great. You're an outlier. <laughs> so, you know, people that are frail. So I would say frail at any stage of life, uh, probably not ideal. Anyone that has a distorted relationship with food, whether it be binge eating, anorexia, or bulimia, mm-hmm. Yeah. There are always exceptions, but what I find for many of those individuals, especially the anorexic, it, it can stoke that that mindset that you know they want to they want to be very restrictive with their food, and so that can that can be problematic. Although I have seen one or two women that have done very well with it, I think it has to be the right person and the right mm-hmm. working with the right eating disorder specialist. Uh, I always think about anyone who's recently been hospitalized, lost a lot of weight, or is mm. underweight. Yeah, not a great strategy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyone that's got chronic diseases. So I, I think this is absolutely critical when someone is, whether they have significant vascular disease, they're a brittle diabetic, um, they have kidney or liver disease, they're, you know, it, it is important to have a conversation with your healthcare provider. You know, it does not mean that the strategy might not be right for you in the future, but if you're not in a place where you're you're medically optimized, that can be hugely problematic. And so, you know, especially with the brittle diabetics in particular, if you can't recognize that you're hypoglycemic, that's a problem. Right. Uh, you know, beyond that, I'm, I'm pretty flexible on many ways. I'm open-minded enough to say that there are people, there will always be people that will be exceptions to, you know, what I've mentioned. Right. But that's typically my starting point. You know, that, that's kind of my, my rule out when I'm working with people. But I do find... Um, Typically, in, in my clinical experience, the ones I worry the most about are kids wanting to restrict food intake or, you know, the brittle diabetics or the eating disorder crowd are the ones I worry about the most. Yeah. Well, what about the whole concept of prolonged fasting? Like there are some people who advocate water fasting for days. Do you have any thoughts mm-hmm. on prolonged fasting? I do. I mean, you know, to me, and it's, it's interesting that you asked me that question. I was asked that last night on a panel. Um, you know, when I'm looking at prolonged fasting, we know that when you get over that 18 to 24 hour mark, you really are, you know, magnifying growth hormone secretion, you're, you're magnifying autophagy. So, you know, a 24 to 48 hour fast, I think for, or even a 36 hour fast can be hugely beneficial. In fact, some people like to do those things on a quarterly basis. We know that you're really kind of pushing the envelope about the autophagy and growth hormone, as well as fat oxidation. What's interesting is when you get to the three to five day range, you can really have impact on stem cells, telomere length. Um, You can see a lot of anti-aging benefits. And I always say that, you know, a three to five day fast is not something for the the beginner faster. Mm -hmm. A 24 hour fast, a 36 hour fast might be nice for someone who needs to jumpstart, needs to get on top of cravings. Um, if someone has a lot of weight to lose, sometimes a two or three day fast would supervise, meaning at least working with someone that's, that's familiar or knowledgeable about intermittent fasting can be beneficial. But I really think it depends on the individual. And for many people, they sometimes need to crawl before they run. And mm-hmm. so I always say that, you know, crawling is the 12 to 14 hours fasted, and then they slowly are increasing out to, um, you know, longer fasts. Um, 
I think it really depends on, on someone's goals and, and what they're looking for. But we do know that there are profound physiologic benefits beyond just a daily 16 or 18 hour fasted period. Great, yeah. Great. Yeah. I like that. And I think so, so many clinicians, you know, they find a new thing and so many patients will find mm-hmm. a new thing too. They want to kind of like jump right into That's it right. and go a little bit That's overboard. Right. And, yeah. you know, I think sometimes that can backfire and, mm-hmm. you know, then yeah. you throw the baby out with the bathwater if it's not going the way you want it to go. So I, I appreciate that. Um, just s- switching gears a little bit. You've also done amazing work with women's hormonal health and your second Ted talk was about surviving or better yet thriving in those perimenopausal and menopausal years. So just briefly, like what are some main tips that you offer to women in this stage of life? Well, this is, this is the time in a woman's life that, uh, they really have to prioritize themselves. And it's oftentimes very hard. We're in the sandwich generation. So we've got kids, we've got aging parents, we've got, you know, we're probably all in a position in our, in terms of our, uh, you know, our professional journeys that we may be at a point where we have a lot more added responsibilities. And so women in particular that are making that transition from perimenopause into menopause have to prioritize sleep. I know it's not sexy. Mm-hmm. People People never like to hear this. You can't get by <laughs> in four or five hours a night's sleep chronically and habitually. Uh, there's just too many benefits uh, to sleep and, and not getting enough sleep. I, I give one example, not getting you know more than six hours a night's sleep lessens your likelihood of being able to control your blood sugar by up to 60%. Mm. And we know that when we're sleep deprived, we don't crave healthy things. We don't crave broccoli. We crave junk. Right. Uh, so sleep quality is huge. Cold, dark room, wearing a sleep mask, getting off electronics. Um, you know, making sure you're really tapping into those, you know, first four hours of sleep, you're really, you know, tapping into the glymphatic system where again, a waste recycling process in the brain, uh, stress management is absolutely critical. People think that this isn't important. It is the most important thing. If you want to help manage and balance, you know, the endocrine system, your brain and your hormones. And so, you know, whether or not that's yoga or meditation or just walking or doing Tai Chi or doing grounding work, I mean, it is absolutely critical. And this is a time you can't skimp. Uh, and so I like to think about, you know, the other aspects of, you know, managing these middle-aged years is, you know, food sensitivities. And again, it's not a sexy topic. Mm-hmm. People will find they don't tolerate alcohol as much. Mm-hmm. Gluten and grains and dairy can be problematic. It doesn't mean it's that way for everyone. Mm-hmm. But when you're looking at inflammatory foods, you have to be honest with yourself. What I see is a lot of women transitioning and they're drinking two or three glasses of wine a night. Not only is that disruptive to your waistline, but it can also be very disruptive to your sleep. Um, I, I notice a lot of women, it dysregulates their blood sugar, then they get hot flashes when they sleep and their sleep quality actually diminishes even more. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I encourage women to really do a deep dive into um, looking at toxins in their environment, their personal care products and their food. Uh, it sounds a little bit overwhelming, but shouldn't be. Environmental mm-hmm. Working Group does a great job with the food piece, you know, looking at vegetables and fruits. Yeah. Um, they also do a, a nice job with an app called Skin Deep. You can plug in your personal care products. Yep. But just being aware of what you're exposed to in your environment, like plastics are huge. There was actually a study that I was just recently reading talking about parabens can impact your sleep quality. And, and it is no joke. Estrogen disruptive chemicals yep. can really be a problem. Yep. And then... I would say the other the other aspect of um, you know middle age that I think is so critical is you know looking at balancing your macros. So looking at your protein, fat, and carbs. And we're a very carb centric uh, society. And so for many people, they fear there's a huge emotional connection to carbohydrates and food in general. And so especially as women get um, start dealing with more sarcopenia, more muscle loss, 
as we're getting older, and I like to remind people that muscle is the organ of longevity. So the more muscle mass you have, the more insulin sensitive you will be. Uh, and we're just more prone to insulin resistance as, as we make that transition. So really being mindful about putting, you know, focusing on protein and healthy fats first, and then really being mindful of the quality of carbohydrates and quantities that you're consuming. I would say those are like the high points mm -hmm. uh, that really can be hugely impactful on women in particular uh, as they make that that transition into to menopause. Um, well, hopefully in their 50s, but I'm seeing more and more women in their 40s that are transitioning earlier. Yeah, yeah. those are that's amazing. That's those are great. amazing tips. Those yeah. are great for anyone. And, you know, we, we encourage everyone to check out your podcast, Everyday Wellness. But you also have a website called CynthiaThurlow.com that has so much on there. There's so many learning programs. There's free downloads. There's blogs. Can you tell us a little bit about what people can expect when they go to that site? Yeah, so it's it's designed to be a very, you know, helpful, nurturing, supportive environment. And so we have blog posts. And as you mentioned, the podcast, um, there are plenty of downloads on intermittent fasting that are all free and accessible. Uh, you'll find I have something called an intermittent fasting masterclass that I offer a few times a year. There's information on when we offer our next one. Uh, there's opportunities to work with me and some of my team one-on-one uh, -on -one if people want a more kind of personalized, individualized approach. And then one of the things that I'm rolling out that I will be eventually rolling out is a, is a program to actually have clinicians or health coaches learn more about being able to spread the word about intermittent fasting that's very research and evidence-based uh, that can help impact more lives. I, I think it's, it's a really helpful strategy and, and obviously one that um, I, I'm very passionate about, yeah. but one that can be very, very impactful in so many lives. Yeah. I love that. That's excellent. A lot of, a lot of great work that you've done on that website. Just, Congratulations on that. Yeah. In general, thank you so much for, you. for all your effort and passion into this, this subject. We really appreciate it. Um, before, no, you're welcome. but before we let you go, we normally end every single interview with a little bit of a curveball question, mm -hmm. uh, a little bit of something to okay. humanize and, Figure, learn more <laughs> about you. So here's, famous people like you, Cynthia. Right. So here's the fireball question. The fireball. Maybe you're on a refeed day, and maybe mm -hmm. you're. It's a little bit of a cheat day or something like that. Do you have? How do you feel about sandwiches? And do you have <laughs> a favorite sandwich? I don't really eat bread. Um, uh, I've been yeah. gluten free for almost nine years. Yeah. But if I were to eat a sandwich. <laughs> Gosh, I probably, so I grew up in New Jersey yeah. uh -huh. and they used to have this sub shop at the shore. So I grew up on the beach <laughs> and it was fantastic. It was like provolone and salami and we always wow. got lots of onions and they put oil and vinegar on it and lots of salt and pepper. Nice. I would probably have that, but they don't make a gluten-free variety of that. <laughs> I've been home a few times <laughs> in the last few years, yeah. but I would say I don't eat sandwiches, but if I were to, there's something about the, the bite of the the um, onion combined with yeah. the vinegar and <laughs> the, the um, pepperoni and provolone. It's just delicious. That's so awesome. Salty, salty goodness. Yeah, that's awesome. And that's very Jersey Shore too. Like like Jersey Mike's. Do you ever go to Jersey yeah. Mike's? Yeah, yeah. 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 That's yeah. Right. yeah. Well, I love see, it. I grew up in the town that Jersey Mike's originated from. So the real Jersey Mike's. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Oh, see, then that's a very original yeah. answer because exactly. she's right from the birthplace. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's right. <laughs> 
my, my kids, so I have all boys. They would have been obscenely disappointed if I were to say, I just don't eat sandwiches. They'd be like, mom, that's the lamest answer ever. So if I were to eat a sandwich, I would absolutely have the Jersey Mike's. I love it. And love it. Great answer. Well, Cynthia, we can't thank yeah. you enough for being on the show. This is a ridiculous amount of great information. We're going to yeah. encourage everyone to check out your podcast, um, Everyday Wellness. And in fact, also go to CynthiaThurlow.com. But thank you so much for spending the time with us today. Yeah, thank Cynthia. you so much, Cynthia. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. And sorry for the vacuum in the background. <laughs> no, it was perfect. Well, finally, finally, we hit that topic. Yeah. With the expert. Long time coming. Yeah, we got the right person for that. Holy moly, that was fantastic. Let me ask you something, though, Michael. Okay. Have you ever done a prolonged fast, like a water fast for days? Uh, Yes, I have. You did? Yeah. I don't know if I I could do it. I made it three days. You're kidding. No. I don't know if I could do it. It makes me think, like, I, I intermittently fast now, but could I do two days? I don't even know if I could do 24 hours. You could. I wish I was in a little bit of better health when I did it i think it would have been i think it would have had more success and probably could have even gone longer but uh hmm. i was having some major blood sugar control issues yeah and i know just to give you some insight <laughs> into what's going on it's a over lot here. of personal information there but i know in this time that fasting can decrease your immunity and your immune cells so it might not be the best time to try it but it's on my radar maybe we can do it together all right Next time on The Lab Report, Dr. Brad Lichtenstein. Yeah, mindfulness and meditation. It's going to be relaxing. Calm. You've been listening to The Lab Report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net. Now I want a Jersey Mike sub. Oh, man. Really? All that oil and vinegar. I need to go eat one now. Man, just vinegar. I could just, just, just the vinegar. But she's right, like Jersey Shore, some really good hoagies there. We talk a lot about food. Yes, we do.